Well, good morning, and welcome to Dave Does History on Bill McLive. Bill's not here today. Um, he's having a procedure done today, either a colonoscopy or a colonoscopy. colonoscopy I'm not clear. It's got a camera involved, and, and there you go. So good luck, Bill. Hope that goes smoothly for you. Anyway, we're glad you're with us today. In 1921, the United States, along with other major allied powers coming out of the First World War, were concerned about the danger of a Second World War. One of the primary driving causes of the First World War had been the naval arms race, particularly between Germany, Imperial Germany, and Great Britain which had led to insane spending on ships being built ever bigger, ever faster, ever stronger. And in the end, it led to a great deal of philosophical disappointment in the performance of those navies during the First World War. Uh, there were only a couple of battles after 1913, for, after 1915. Uh, Jutland, Dogger Bank, neither of which were very determinative in the outcome of the war. They were uh, tactical draws, I guess. And yet all this money had been spent on these naval vessels. And the Allies were looking at this post-war saying to themselves, we've got to prevent that from happening again. We've got to set some standards here and say to ourselves, okay, this is how many of this kind of ship you can have. The big concern, of course, was the battleship, the Dreadnought, and all of the major naval powers were building Dreadnoughts, big battleships, and this was concern, cause for concern. The Washington Naval Treaty essentially set limits on how many of these ships each nation could have, and how much those ships could weigh in gross naval tonnage. So that's the amount. The gross naval tonnage is a way of describing a ship size-wise. It, it is essentially the amount of water in tons that the ship displaces. So when you put the ship in the water, mo water moves. The more of that water that moves, the bigger the ship probably is. And if you know anything about Archimedes and that sort of thing, you know displacement you understand that as long as you displace more water than you actually weigh you'll float or maybe it's the other way around no i think that is the way it is at any rate because this isn't a science class um the basic limit the basic limit was thirty-five thousand tons for a battleship and in that era that's about what a battleship weighed so the united states navy had a bunch of World War I battleships, 
Um, the only one surviving today, the only one you can see physically today is USS Texas, which is right around 30,000 tons uh, displacement. The idea here was that if you limited the size, you could force the designers of those ships to make trade-offs. So do I want really big guns and lots of armor, or do I just want to go really, really fast and have smaller guns and less armor? And there are trade-offs to all of these things, as, as the war experience had shown, uh, particularly at the Battle of Jutland. The British really liked the battlecruiser idea, which was a smaller battleship, battlecruiser, but it was lightly armed, uh, lightly armored, even though it was heavily armed, but it was fast, so you couldn't catch it. But the problem was, as they quickly discovered at Jutland, if you hit it, um, it was likely to blow up. In the words of Admiral David Beatty, something's wrong with our bloody ships today, after he watched the fourth one detonate into a cloud of smoke. So this naval treaty that we sign, and it's called the Washington Naval Treaty, sometimes just referred to as the Washington Treaty, set limits, 35,000 tons on capital ships, and it limited the number of these ships that any particular nation could have. Particularly of note was the ratio, 553. So for every five battleships that Great Britain built, the United States could build five to match. But the Empire of Japan could only build three, according to the limits. There was a lot of bad feeling about that, particularly from the Japanese, who felt very, very insulted by that, and very, very put upon by this Washington Naval Treaty. The Germans, of course, defeated in the war were limited by some other things, but they started working in the early 1930s around, you know, how to get around that, as did all the nations. How do we get around this? And there's even this idea that, okay, if we limit ourselves to, say, 10 battleships, then the Americans can only build 10 and the Japanese can only build six. But what if we only build nine? Do we... Do we slope that in there? And all of this came into effect. Now, the thing to keep in mind that is in 1921, when this treaty was signed, aircraft carriers were a novelty item. They were not the queen of the naval battlefield. They were very small for the most part, very underpowered. In most cases, they were converted naval uh, merchant vessels. They had very little capacity to carry airplanes, and the airplanes that they were carrying were still very early. I mean, really, combat aircraft had, you know, 1915, so we're, we're talking about six years of development. These airplanes were not, you know, top-of-the-line fighters or anything like that. There weren't a lot of pilots. There weren't a lot of people that knew how to take off or land on a ship at that particular point. And so aircraft carriers were not ignored in the Washington Naval Treaty. They were permitted, but there you go. At the time the treaty was signed, the United States Navy had two brand new battle cruisers on the way, ready to be launched. These were beautiful ships as designed. They were fast, faster than pretty much anything afloat, 
and they would remain that fast for many years to come. In fact, we'll talk about it in a little bit here, why, why they were so fast. They were built for speed, and they were built to carry heavy, heavy guns with very light armor. They weren't designed to stand up and slug it out with somebody. They were designed to, you know, hit and run. But the Washington Navy Treaty said you can't have those anymore. You, you're, over your, you're over your limit. But they were almost complete. The holes were anyway. And so the United States Navy stepped back and said, well, what do we do? And so somebody hit on a bright idea to turn these two ships, USS Lexington, USS Saratoga, into aircraft carriers. Wow, what an idea, right? So they finished them as aircraft carriers. The first two, two of the first three aircraft carriers that the United States Navy had. At the time, the Navy had one carrier, the USS Langley, a converted merchant ship. She was slow, slow as molasses. Couldn't carry a lot of planes, but she did a really good job at what she was supposed to do. But now you've got these two aircraft carriers, Lexington and Saratoga, that are the largest in the world and hands down the fastest. Now, all your battleships that you've built along the way, and remember that the United States basically didn't build a battleship from 1920 till 1939-ish. So all we had were these old battle wagons, these dreadnoughts, as it were, that had a top speed of right around 23 maybe downhill with a tailwind, 25 knots. If you really, really pushed them and they were really in the best shape and the hull was clean and everything else, they couldn't keep up with the aircraft carriers. Could not keep up. The destroyers that we had at the time had a hard time keeping up. They were burning fuel just trying to keep up with Lex and Sarah as they sailed all around the world, starting in 1922-23. And they participated in all kinds of war games all around the world. They, they simulated a, a, an attack on the Panama Canal, which would be significant because it was that attack that was seen, that war game attack, that was seen by the Japanese and gave them the genesis of the idea for the attack at Pearl Harbor. It can be done. See, aircraft carriers can do this stuff. And we like them. The Lexington and the Saratoga were beautiful ships. And they were they looked identical. The Lex and Sarah looked identical. This is the this is kind of one of the funny things about them, is they they looked from from a distance you couldn't tell them apart. There there actually was one way to tell them apart definitively, but you got to be a naval expert to know that, or you know a real goofball historian like some people are. Anyway, so they hit on this idea of painting the the funnel of the Saratoga, the big smokestack, they put a big black stripe down the middle of it. And that's how you could tell them apart, Lexington and Saratoga. And that famed black stripe would stay with Saratoga until the 1940s uh, when, when the loss of the Lexington at the Battle of the Coral Sea made it superfluous. It was no longer necessary. So these three ships, Langley, Lexington, and Saratoga. Langley, not as much, but Lexington and Saratoga just proved the concept of how to how to fight with an aircraft carrier. So the United States Navy tried building an aircraft carrier from the ground up. So remember the Saratoga and the Lexington are actual battle cruisers that have been converted. They built the Ranger, 
which was from the keel up designed and built as an aircraft carrier, and she wasn't very successful. She was slow. They had problems with with the smoke funnels. They had funnel, they had all kinds of problems with her. She served well. Don't get me wrong. Ranger participated primarily in the Atlantic during the Second World War, but she was never a frontline carrier. You weren't going to send her into action against uh, the Japanese Navy because she wasn't going to be able to stand up. But with all this experience with Lexington, Saratoga, Ranger, Langley, the Navy perfected its design, and that would lead to what were known as the Yorktown class. USS Yorktown, the USS Hornet, and the USS Enterprise, probably the three most famous carriers uh, during the war. Two of them were lost. Yorktown and Hornet were lost. Enterprise survives the war. And that, of course, develops into what we call the Essex-class carriers, which were the pinnacle of aircraft carrier design, uh, just incredible ships that served this country well into the 1980s. There were Essex-class carriers still serving in the Navy in the 1980s. And you can see those. Hornet is in uh, Alameda. Lexington's down in Galveston. Uh, Yorktown's in Charleston. And Intrepid is up in New York. You can still see these these Essex-class carriers today as museum ships. But back to Lexington and Saratoga. And specifically, we want to talk today about USS Lexington. I'm sorry, USS Saratoga. Saratoga is, I don't know if she's an unlucky ship. She seems to have this tendency, though, to be in the wrong place at the right time, if you, if you kind of follow my drift. The day of the Pearl Harbor attack, December 7th, 1941, there are actually three aircraft carriers that are, quote-unquote, home-ported at Pearl Harbor. Enterprise. Lexington, and Saratoga. Saratoga is not there because she's in San Diego. A few weeks before, she had been making a high-speed run of some kind, and her turbine that drives the, the screw, drives the shaft to drive the screw, had actually jumped its bed. And so imagine your transmission in your car shifting two inches to the left while you're driving at high speed. It's kind of what happened. It's a major repair. So they had to go back to San Diego because Pearl Harbor at the time did not have the ability to do that. I told you before that the battleships could not keep up with the aircraft carriers. The aircraft carriers, Enterprise and Lexington, had been sent to sea December 4th, December 5th, in that time frame to deliver aircraft to Midway Island and to Wake Island, to the Marine divisions there holding those islands. Needed reinforcements. We're going to send these two carriers because they're really fast some destroyers with them. We'll keep the battleships here because they're just too old and too slow. And lo and behold, we saw what happened. Enterprise arrives back at Pearl Harbor that night, Lexington the next day, and the war is now underway. Saratoga's service in the war, particularly the early part of the war, is very problematic. She's, like I said, she's not a lucky ship. She's not an unlucky ship, but she's not a lucky ship. You know what I mean? Between her turbine problems, with her turbine shaking uh, too much, and some other things that were going on, by the time she finally gets into action, after the Battle of Midway, 
she heads down towards Guadalcanal for that Guadalcanal campaign. Now, as we've talked about before in the Guadalcanal campaign, this is a vicious campaign. And it will end up costing a lot of lives, a lot of equipment. It'll cost us the USS Hornet. Uh, will be sunk in the Battle of Santa Cruz Islands. And Saratoga keeps missing the battles. She's she's off doing this. Battle starts. Oh, she comes running. She gets there just as it ends. This happens at Midway. It happens at Santa Cruz. She's finally uh, involved in the fight in Eastern Solomons, which is where the Enterprise is badly hurt because they never really find Saratoga. She's she's doing the best she can. Don't get me wrong. I mean, again, she's not bad, but she just keeps, seems to keep missing. You know what I mean? And it's there that she gets hit by another torpedo. A Japanese submarine torpedoes her. She doesn't sink. Again, she's not an unlucky ship. But when you need her most, she seems to be mm, off and running somewhere else. She goes back to San Diego, back to Pearl. They repair her again, and they send her back at the end of the of the Guadalcanal campaign. Guadalcanal has been secured. But now the British are in trouble over in the Indian Ocean. And somebody says, what can we do to help? And USS Saratoga is actually sent all the way around to Ceylon in the Indian Ocean, where she serves with the British fleet over there fighting the Japanese over there. And by all accounts, she does fantastic. And when she's done with that and headed back in 1943, headed back to the American fleet, she actually does, it's kind of a neat thing when it happens. I've never actually seen it happen. I've read about it. I've seen film of it. But when a ship is departing like that, they do a, a pass in review. So the fleet that's staying is at anchor or very slow speed in a line. And they're just moving in a line. And the other ship, in this case Saratoga, comes past them, not screaming past, but not slow either. And as as she passes each ship, they salute. Of course, it's British, so it's like this. Um, They fire off guns. So Saratoga gets this send-off from the British fleet. They love her. And she heads back to Pearl Harbor, gets a little bit of a refit, gets ready to head out again. And by 1942, the end of 1942 into 1943, she literally becomes one of the big flagships of the United States Navy. She's an important ship, and she's serving well, and she's leading the United States Navy in its assaults as we begin the island-hopping campaign towards Japan. She gets a couple of refits along the way, you know, adding some things, taking some things away. One of the things her captain wanted was more anti-aircraft guns, so they give them to him. And off she goes into into those services. In 1944, she's sent back to Bremerton, Washington, here where I am, about 10 miles down the road. She goes to Puget Sound Naval Shipyard, and she receives a complete and total overhaul. Everything is fixed, painted, repaired, added. And when she comes out of the shipyard in 19, late 1944, she is probably the best carrier in the fleet. I mean, she is sleek, big. Remember, she's bigger than an Essex class. She carries more planes. She finally got the elevators fixed right. She's fast, and she's 
beautiful. She's painted in that Measure 32 dazzle camouflage, and she sails out of Puget Sound, and the pictures that you can see of that will just blow your mind. The water is so still, and she's just cruising through. She heads out into 1945, where eventually she will find herself off the island of Iwo Jima, where she is supporting the landing at Iwo Jima in February of 1945. On February 21st, actually on February 20th of 1945, she is detached. She is going to go look at, she's going to go perform a separate duty. Um, It's hard to, sometimes it's hard to explain this stuff, but the Navy was struggling with this whole, there, there were things that needed to be done, and sometimes the Navy didn't think really, really great in how they were doing some things. But there was an island near Iwo Jima called Chichi, Chichijima. This is a very small island. It's a very, it's a very small place. It's not, there's nothing significant about it other than a couple of things are going to happen here. Number one, Chichijima is the island that George Herbert Walker Bush is bombing when he gets shot down and later rescued by the USS Fenback. There's enough of military value there that it needs to be hit again, but not enough to send the whole fleet. And so some admiral gets the idea that we'll just send Saratoga with six destroyers and she can handle the whole thing. She's got radar now. She's got plenty of fighter cover. She's good to go. And they send her off on February 20th. She rides off Chichijima begins doing the bombing runs and those sorts of things. When February 21st dawns, however, it's a very overcast day, and the cloud deck is very, very, very low. By some estimates, right around 1,500 feet. But that's going to vary minute by minute. You just don't know. And radar, while it's important is more important when it works in conjunction with other ships, and the carriers and the battleships carry the big radars. The destroyers have some radar, but not as much. While she is there alone, taking care of Chichijima, six Japanese planes come screaming out of the low overcast. Miraculous that they found her. Of course, they probably had radio contact with the the troops on Chichijima saying, hey, there's a big aircraft carrier over here. Come get it. They come screaming out. And they hit her. They hit Saratoga hard. One of the kamikazes hits her in the forward port corner. And chaos ensues. The ship is badly, badly wounded. In fact, the fire's out of control in a few minutes. And it is a testament to the United States Navy, even to this day, I think, that the damage control training was so good, so so well done, that within a couple of hours, the fires are put out 
She's able to recover six aircraft, but she is badly hurt and is going to have to go back for repairs because there's no way she can continue like this. In the course of fighting these fires, though, there is an absolute tragedy in what goes on. The only way to put out the fire in one area is to seal the compartment. And inside this compartment are 64 men. And when that door is sealed, their fate was sealed. Saratoga will lose 123 men this day, February 21st, 1945. She'll have another 160-plum-odd wounded. And for all practical purposes, she will be put out of the war. She'll return to Pearl Harbor, where they cannot unseal that compartment because they don't have the ability to do it there. They will send her to Bremerton, here, where those repairs will begin. They've decided now to turn her into a training aircraft carrier. She's old. She's tired, damaged. She doesn't have the modern equipment that the Essex class have. Let's just make her a training carrier and then, you know, get her back into service as quick as we can. But as a part of those repairs, they're going to have to open up that compartment with those 64 men in it. There are a lot of holy places in this country, what I call holy places. Places where men and women who serve this nation lie and rest. And we can go to those places and we can see their their tombs with their names on them. Arlington, Little Bighorn National Cemetery, the Punch Bowl in Hawaii. And you go to these places and you walk amongst the stuff, Fort Leavenworth, my, my great-grandfather's buried there. You walk among these stones and you see those names. And you see something of their story. Born, died, United States Navy, United States Coast Guard, United States Army, United States Army Air Corps, United States Marines. And then it tells you their awards, you know, what they got. And you can begin to start to say, okay, what happened on that day that left this person lying here? Here in Bremerton, we have one of those holy places. It's called Ivy Green Cemetery. And it's in the heart of old Bremerton. It's less than a mile, just over the hill, from the same Puget Sound Naval Shipyard dock where USS Saratoga pulled in in March of 1945, having been hit, that devastating hit, on February 21st, today, 1945. They opened up that compartment, and it was absolutely impossible to identify the 64 men. Couldn't be done. And here at Ivy Green, at our cemetery here, we have a monument. It's not a tomb, it's a monument to the National Tomb of the Unknown Soldier, 
If you've ever been to Arlington, you know what I'm talking about, the Tomb of the Unknown. We have a monument that looks like that. And the reason we have that monument is because it honors those who have fallen, but who are known but to God. We have no idea who they are. And those 64 men were taken to a plot just a few feet from that monument. And it's fitting that it's here, as in 1945, 64 of Saratoga's unknown, known but to God, were laid to final rest here, just a few feet now from that tomb of the unknown monument. And there they lay, even today. They're still there. I was there yesterday morning because I wanted to go out and see it again. I wanted to to go out and be there to make sure that I understood that feeling. I'm a very tactile person. Saratoga, USS Saratoga, would go on to finish her own career in the United States Navy less than a year later, less than a year after the end of World War II. She would be disposed, I guess is the way they say it. She was used as a target during Operations Crossroads, Operation Crossroads, which was the uh, atomic bomb test done at Bikini Atoll. When they dropped the first shot, the Able shot, which was dropped from an airplane, it barely dented her, which was weird because she's not that heavily armored. It didn't really... There were a lot of people who said, you know, if we just clean her off and stuff, she she could probably still operate. But the Baker shot, the undersea shot, when they put the bomb underwater and set it off practically right underneath her, blew out her bottom, and she sank the next day, where she still rests today. You can go to Bikini Atoll. You can dive the wreck of the USS Saratoga. It's disintegrating rapidly, but you can do that. About 10 years later, 1966 or so, 1956 or so, the same shipyard that built Saratoga, CV-3, the first Saratoga carrier, would build a second one. This time, one of the new modern Forrestal-class supercarriers. She would be called Saratoga, and in honor of her namesake, the crew would paint that same black stripe down the funnel so that she could be easily told apart from her three sisters. And in 1992, in what is kind of a precursor to what would happen at the Punch Bowl with USS Oklahoma and other fallen unknowns around the world, in 1992, the remains of the Courier Saratoga's crew here in Bremerton were disinterred and tested for DNA, and all 64 were identified. They still all rest here with their shipmates, because while they were once known only to God, now they are known to all of us. And if you're ever in Bremerton, I encourage you to stop by Ivy Green Cemetery. You will be amazed at what you find there. There is a Medal of Honor recipient There are veterans of every war we've ever fought, Civil War, American Revolutionary War, the 
Spanish-American War, World Wars I and II, Vietnam-Korea, and of course World War II. And in one small section, surrounded by bush and close to that tomb monument, lie the men of USS Saratoga, who fell this day, February 21st, 1945, off Chichi Jima. Once they were known only to God, but now you know their story as well.